This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We're in a series called Revive, and uh, we've been looking at different passages of Scripture that speak to the issue of renewal and God renewing or reviving His people. So we looked at a lot of different passages. Last week we looked at 1 Samuel 4, and that was part one of this this sermon. I mean, that, this is the conclusion. That was the beginning. So if you weren't here uh, last week, uh, that's okay, because I'm going to real quickly catch you up to what we talked about last week. I'm going to give you the headlines, and uh, so you'll know what happened last week, and then we're going to look at this passage uh, today in 1 Samuel 7. What this is, is it's two chapters that are written. There's a, an ark narrative. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Some things happen to it in chapters 5 and 6, but it's really two chapters that mirror each other, and the author really wrote it in such a way that you can pick up certain things from chapter 4 are contrasted, even some of the same language contrasted in chapter 7, because what is being revealed in these two chapters is the difference in superficial repentance and supernatural repentance, surface repentance and core heart repentance. Uh, Slight, you know, kind of uh, using God would be one way to say for our benefit rather than coming to him for his glory. So that's what these two chapters kind of uh, contrast in. So let me tell you what happened in chapter four, then uh, and you can listen to the message from last week if you want to, then we'll jump into chapter 7. So here's what happened to chapter 4. Israel is camping at a place called Ebenezer. That's important because that's going to come up in chapter 7. So they're camping at Ebenezer, and the Philistines are there, and there's a battle. The Philistines kill 4,000 Israelites. So the people of Israel are like, whoa, we, we've been killed. So they, they run. Well, they didn't say that if they were killed, but the, the, the surviving ones said some of our army's been killed. So they run back to the elders of Israel. And this is what happens. They go back to the elders of Israel and the elders say this. Why? uh, Let me quote to you. The elders say, uh, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So they, they have good theology. They understand that God is sovereign and God has defeated them. Why has God defeated us? Good intuition, good evaluation. Their solution is terrible. Because what they say is, go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into battle. And the assumption is that if we get God's box, if we get God's furniture, if we get the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the Ten Commandments, if we get that, where God rests, it's his footstool, if we bring that out to battle, we will win. And you can tell very much from what happens, it's sort of a rabbit's foot theology. It's sort of uh, superstitious. It's sort of like if God is here, he'll defend his name and himself uh, because the Ark of the Covenant is here. What, what stands out in chapter 4 is that after they're defeated and they say, why has God defeated us? No one prays. No one pauses to ask, well, maybe this has something to do with us. No one asked Samuel, hey, do you have a word from God? You're a prophet. What does God say to us about going into battle? No one does that. They say, bring the ark and we will be okay. We will be delivered. Now, here's the key. The two guys that bring the ark are Hophni and Phinehas. They are sons of Eli, the priest. And what we find if we go back is they are scoundrels. When people come to bring an offering, they help out. Uh, When people bring a sacrifice, they help out in the worship at the tent. Uh, They shake people down to get the leftover meat to eat it for themselves from the sacrifice. Uh, There are ladies that serve at the tent of meeting for worship. They're sleeping with the women. So they're committing uh, fornication, adultery. So they are uh, unbelievers. It says they don't believe. And they bring the ark. And so they get the ark, everybody shouts, they go to battle, 30,000 Israelites are killed. It's way worse. It's almost eight times worse with the ark of the covenant in terms of loss than it is without it. Hophni and Phinehas are killed. And the ark of the covenant is captured by the Philistines. They get the ark which was behind the curtain at the tent of meeting. They get this most holy, they get the Ten Commandments. They steal it, and the people of God are devastated. When Eli hears about it, he falls over and he dies. It's one of the most tragic accounts of battle in the history of Israel. 
In chapters 5 and 6, the ark moves around a little bit. And in chapter 7, this is what we find from God's people who have not really turned to him. We find out in this chapter they worshiped other gods. And rather than ceasing to worship gods, rather than calling Hophni and Phinehas to repentance, rather than any of that, they just say, get the ark and we'll be okay. And they're not. So what happens, chapter 7, reading from verse 1, this is God's word. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah. And I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would have its work in our hearts, Lord. Our our confidence is in you to speak to us by your spirit through your God-breathed word. So we are asking that we would see you in this passage. We're asking that our hearts would be gripped with a revelation of you and your holiness and your mercy. And that, Lord, you, that you, as you call us to come to you, Lord, there would be a, a rushing, that we would run. We wouldn't wait, but we would run to you, Lord. That we would turn away from things that dishonor you and turn towards you in a fresh way today, O God. So have your way, Lord. We ask that you would be merciful to us. We ask that your kindness would lead us to repentance, for that's what your word teaches us. Thank you for your love for us, your grace for us. And we just pray that as we sang, your grace never failing. And so right now, as we dig into your word, would your grace succeed and have its way in our hearts, never failing for you are building your church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter could not be any different than, than, chapter, than it is from chapter 4. The people of God are responding completely in the opposite direction towards God. It's been 20 years since the ark has settled, and 20 years later we find in, three, in verse 3 that Israel lamented after the Lord. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They lamented. There was a sorrow. That's the appropriate response when we see the holiness of God and we see his kindness to make us his people as they were. We see his love and his faithfulness and his mercy to us And we see our rebellion against him. In their case, the turning to other gods. The appropriate response is lament. Lament. And actually, that is what leads them. That's kind of the first step in some ways of repentance, is that we encounter the truth of God, and our response is a lament. Lament is a Godward sorrow. Lament is vertical. It is directed to God. It's not horizontal, 
It's not, uh, it's not my circumstances, it's God. What, what we find here is it's not that they regret their circumstances. It's not that they're just saying, well, I have some regrets, which they do, or I don't like my circumstances, which they don't. It's not just saying, man, life's really hard. It maybe if we turn to God, he'll fix it. They, that's what they did before. They didn't really turn from their heart. They just turned in sort of a shallow way. But here they are aware and they are lamenting after the Lord. They have an awareness of their own sin and they are looking to God and lamenting. Lamenting is primarily generates from looking vertically. Not looking inward, but ultimately it comes from looking vertically. We are aware then of where we are inwardly. And then we look to the Lord for change. Only when we've had a vision of the Lord will we lament after the Lord. That's what it says. They lamented after the Lord. Only when we see him from the scripture. I don't mean literally see him with our physical eyes, but the eyes of our heart. Only when we see who he is and what he's like will we ever come to the place that they do here and lament after him. In chapter 4, it's a lamenting after their circumstances. They're beating us. What should we do? We're losing people. What should we do? We're going to be uh, subjected to further control from the Philistines. What should we do? We want to get out of this. We don't like it. They don't turn to the Lord. They do something religious. Let's do something religious. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant in the battlefield and we'll be okay. See, theirs is circumstantial. They want alleviation from their suffering, from their circumstances in chapter 4. Here, they're lamenting after God. And we see in this passage, they're opening themselves to God in a new way. If we're honest, we all know what it is just to sort of go horizontal. I want to get rid of my circumstances. I don't like the stuff I'm walking through, and so I'm going to turn away. I see it's probably sinful. It's probably wrong. I'm going to turn away from it so I can get, so I don't have the pressure, the pain, the problems that it brings. That's chapter four. See, so it's like we say, you know, I'm tired of getting in fights with my wife. I don't like the conflict. I don't like the vibe that's around the house, so I just want to stop that. See how that's horizontal. That's a horizontal response. I hate being in debt. Every time the bills come or I see something in my inbox or my phone rings and it's a number that I don't know and it's somebody telling me I owe them something, I hate the pressure, the feeling. Every time I, I, I just, I, I can't stand that, what it means to be in debt. I don't like battling lust. Why? Because every time I look at uh, I promise I'll never do it again, but every time I look at pornography, then I come away and I feel so guilty for several days. And I hate that feeling of guilt. I hate that cloud over my head. So I want to stop. Do you see how that's a horizontal response? I don't want those things. I don't like the burden of worrying. I hate losing sleep because I'm fearful. I'm anxious. I'm worried about my job, my finances, my parents, my children, my health. Those things worry me, and I want to get a good night's rest. I hate always being tired and always being anxiety. Man, anxiety comes from sin that bears no pleasure whatsoever. I hate that. I want to get rid of it. I hate the loneliness and the darkness in my heart, and I I hate what it what it makes me feel like when I'm depressed. I hate the bitterness that's in my heart. I think about people, uh, the the person that that harmed me, the person that sinned against me, or the person that neglected me, or wasn't there for me, the person that forgot about me. I'm angry and I'm bitter, and I think about them all the time, and I want to just stop thinking about them. That's lamenting my circumstances. That's lamenting the effect of what I'm feeling. Now, that may draw us to the Lord, But that's not where they are. It doesn't say they lamented all that's happening. They lamented after the Lord. Theirs is vertical. Consider this verse, Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God's about to pour out really revival on them. Renewal. It's a new day for Israel in chapter 7 because they're coming to him broken. They're not coming with a religious quick fix. Get the ark, we'll be okay. We'll get God on our side. Pray a quick prayer, do a quick thing. It's not like that. They're coming with their heart. They're not turning to Baal and Ashtaroth. They're lamenting after the Lord. 
This is very different. Joel 2, verse 13. Rend your heart. Rend means tear. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is, a gracious, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel's saying, don't go through the religious motions of tearing your garment, which is a sign of repentance. Don't just tear your garment and think because you do something religious that looks like you're concerned about your behavior, that, that that's what's really needed. Tear your heart and come to the Lord. Return to him personally. He's gracious. He's merciful. God's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. There is a welcome for you with your God. So come deal with your heart and run to him and experience the embrace of God as you return home. Think about the story of the prodigal son. It's like that. Return home to the father's arms who are open. But that comes not through religion, just tearing the garment. That comes from a torn heart. That comes from a broken and contrite spirit, which moves on to the Lord. Now, it's important to note, they don't stay at lament. Lament is important. Lament leads to repent. Maybe you can remember it that way. Lament, I don't do a lot of cutesy sayings. Maybe I should do more. They'd be more memorable. I don't know. I don't do a lot of slogans. I say very little that could be put on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt, but that one might. Lament leads to repent. That's what happens here. Their lament leads them somewhere, and that's what we see happens next. Because in verse 3, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart... So, so Samuel realized there's lamenting, and he addresses the people of God. Now, this may not have been a one-time address. It may not have been like everybody came together, and one time he said, hey, if you want to return to the Lord, let's do these things. This may have been a systematic teaching. We see at the end of the chapter that Samuel goes around and visits all the cities and, and teaches God's people. So this could have been a message he brought for a while. This is the theme. This is the campaign from the prophet Samuel. This is the traveling message that he brings to people. It is, if you want to return to the Lord, here's what that looks like. So he lays out repentance. They lament, and then they repent, but he gives them steps. He gives them a process. He gives them uh, sort of the characteristics of repentance, genuine repentance, which flows from their lament. Here's the first thing he says, verse 3. If you're returning to the Lord, which they want to do, with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Now, down in verse 4, he goes clearer, the people do that. He says, the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Repentance is super tangible. I can be a vague repenter sometimes, which is not really repentance. I sort of feel bad about that. That's a circumstantial thing. I sort of feel bad about that. I should probably, uh, you know, I should probably just stop doing that as opposed to recognizing Uh, that there's something tangible to repentance. And for them, it is tangible. They're to put away foreign gods, specifically Baals and Ashtaroth. Baal and Ashtaroth are are fertility gods. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you read this a lot, don't you? And the people served Baal. And the people didn't tear down the high places, the altars or the... the, uh, the Asherah poles or the, the various means of worship in the high places to foreign gods. They didn't tear those down. They left them up. But here, here it's saying that they're being called to put away these fertility gods. I want to read to you a little bit about what, what this is. What are these fertility gods? Because I want to make a point about their repentance. I think we can misunderstand turning from idolatry. This was very involved, what they were involved in, the worship of Baal and uh, the worship of Ashtaroth. So I'm going to read to you from a commentary. This is from a scholar named Dale Ralph Davis. He used to teach Old Testament Reformed Theological Seminary. He's now a pastor, uh, Presbyterian pastor in Mississippi. And he describes uh, the worship of the people of Canaan. Israel came into Canaan. They were supposed to uh, rid the land of the people who were opposed to God, but they didn't, and they in- didn't rid them of all of them, and they ended up adopting some of their practices. That's the problem in chapter 4. Problem is they're worshiping Baal. Uh, that, that's, that's part of their problem is that they're, they're doing that as well as worshiping God. This is what he writes about it. The God of Israel is strange to the mind of the Canaanite, the people around them. The God of, the is, of Israel is strange. Yahweh has no... Yahweh is the name of God, the Hebrew name of God. Yahweh has no wife, no consort. 
Biblical religion holds that you will find Yahweh acting in history, not pulsating in nature. Yahweh sits on a throne, high and lifted up, from which he rules, creates, preserves, and redeems. He does not lounge in some celestial bedroom, copulating with his feminine divine counterpart. It has become so difficult for us to grasp how different and how holy the God of the Bible is, because that would be the understanding of the people who surrounded them. The Canaanites were not so. Neither was Baal their God. Baal was the God of storm and fertility. And for the Canaanites, of course, fertility was the name of the game. Fertility of crops, fertility of livestock, fertility of family. Baal, nature god that he was, naturally had his female consort, Ashtoreth. So Baal and Ashtoreth are male and female deities um, for, uh, for fertility. The revival of nature was due, the revival of nature meaning, uh, you know, the prosperity of agriculture and human, uh, human uh, prosperity, human uh, multiplication as well. The revival of nature was due to sexual intercourse between Baal and his partner, Ashtoreth. But the Canaanite faithful didn't simply sit back and say, let Baal do it. There was no let go and let Baal thinking among them. Instead, their watchword was, serve Baal with gladness, all ye glands. Hence, the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution as a part of their worship. A Canaanite man, for instance, would go to a Baal shrine and have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes serving there. The man would fulfill Baal's role and the woman, Ashtoreth's role. The idea was that the copulating of the worshiper and the holy prostitute would encourage the divine couple, Mr. and Ms. Baal, to do their thing, and thus the rain, grain, wine, and oil would flow again. Through sacred prostitution, it was possible to assist and to encourage, thus Baal would make all things new. However, nothing would happen unless the fertility powers were properly worshipped. This is what they're a part of. This is the Canaanite religion. This is, this is Baal. So when you see Baal and Ashtoreth in your Bible, that's, that's what's behind it. A fertility religion which incorporated uh, sexual immorality as part of the worship to get the gods to act. Which, les, which leads Davis in another place to say this was a combining of the chapel and the brothel together. They were combined in the worship. The problem was not in chapter 4 that they didn't have the ark. The reason they lost isn't because they don't have the ark with them. It's because they're with Baal and Ashtoreth. That was the problem of the people of God. And so here they are turning. They're being called to turn and put away their idols, and they are turning. But it is, it is a tangible turning, and it is a costly turning as well. See, we can think, well, get rid of your idols for them. Is that just like, you know, Frisco chunk your junk day is coming up. So we got a couple of old idols out in the garage. Let's just throw them away. That, that's not what they're talking about. This was, this was something that was costly that involved their lifestyle. So where did they trust for crops? And what did they do to cultivate, uh, you know, better, uh, a better harvest, better crops? They are turning away from something that would have been difficult. We need to see it. it would have been difficult. It's not just a statue out in the garage. In, in, in American culture, it's very hard to get men to church. In Canaanite culture, men went to church. Men went to worship. They were drawn to the whole perversion of the entire worship service. And so there is a turning from something that they were adapting to that would have been desirable for some of them anyway. He goes on to, to write more about this because not only were they turning from something that was pleasurable, they were also turning from something that was popular. They were being called to be culturally, sort of a cultural dinosaur, sort of a fundamentalist, to serve God only. How narrow is that? He goes on to write this. He says, if we turn on our imagination lights, we can readily understand how Israelites would have been lured toward Baal worship. By the Canaanites, they had allowed to remain in the land. One can almost hear a helpful Canaanite trying to talk a little religion and a little sense 
into his Israelite neighbor. Oh, yes, having Yahweh who brings you out of Egypt, who makes Pharaoh cry uncle, who divides the Jordan, all that is fine. And I've got nothing against this Yahweh, mind you. But here in Canaan, it's not always the big bang that matters, but getting into the rhythms of nature. I mean, trying to manage the day-to-day situation with crops and flocks and so forth. Naturally, I might be able to help you to know some of our secrets. Maybe you and your son would like to come with me to the high place for our midweek service this week. See, they were, they were being called to be different, to, be, to, to stand out in a culture where you could pray to multiple gods. We have this fantasy like we're the first culture ever where believers in God had the pressures of pluralism around them. Like, we're these persecuted people that no one in history has ever said, hey, if you worship one God and one God only, you're narrow. There are, we, 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 we're tolerant of all. Hey, the Canaanites were tolerant. Pagans are historically tolerant. Polytheists, by nature, are tolerant. Many gods. But he's saying, put away your idols and worship God alone. It would cost them pleasure. It would cost them popularity. It was, it was something that was tangible, and it was something that was costly, and that's always the way repentance is. Repentance is tangible, and it can be costly because we turn away from things that we have come to be familiar with and to rely upon and to lean into and to value as substitutes for God. But when the people lament He says, get rid of all the substitutes in verse 4 so the people put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. We're done. We're serving the Lord is what they did. So they put away their idols. That's repentance. Put away. Turn from something. Number two, direct your heart to the Lord. It's not sufficient to just turn from idols. Repentance moves toward the Lord, toward God. This is another, I think, misconception. I think we hear the word repentance and we think, wow, that sounds like that's so hard, like I'm going to be called away from all the good stuff, all the stuff I like, all the pleasurable stuff, all that God just wants to call me away from everything that's fun, good, enjoyable, normal, and he's just calling me to be over here where there is just like nothing, life is boring and empty, it's just the opposite. Repentance is not dreary. Repentance is not dreadful. Repentance holds a joyful hope for us because what we're doing is we're dropping. We're turning away from all the things that can never satisfy. We grab all these things, money, reputation, comfort, ease. Uh, We grab religion. We grab all these things that make us feel good that we think will bring us sustenance. And we think will satisfy us, but they never do. And so he's saying, drop all of the false and come to the real. Come be with your God. Turn away from that which never satisfies so that you may know, experience, serve, and enjoy God. The God who created everything. The God who created your life and gave you a purpose. The God who who gave you his word. The God who has built a people for himself, the God who has come in Jesus to give his life mercifully for us so that if we believe in him, our sins are forgiven and we have new life. The God that walks us through this life into eternity, never letting us go. The God who has adopted us, calls himself father and has adopted us as children into his family. That God, the father God that cares for us, that We get him. We give up the false gods, the God of acquiring more stuff, the God of that friendship, that relationship. If I just have that, I'll be happy. The God of if I just get that job, I'll be satisfied. The God of if I just find a husband, I'll be happy. The God of if my husband was just like her husband, I'll be happy. The God of all of these, all the places that we can run. We, we trade those ideas and those hopes and longings for the one God, the true God. They're, they're turning from false idols to the one God who really does give new life, 
the only God who gives children, the only God that sends the rain for the crops, the only God that gives an abundant harvest. They're turning from the false hopes to the one true God. They direct their heart to the Lord. Thirdly, they serve him only. So this is the three things he says. If you're turning to the Lord, this is what he says. If you're returning to the Lord, return to the Lord means repent. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away your foreign gods. So put away, direct your heart to the Lord, and three, serve him only. Put away idols, direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. Serve him only. They're they're making, again, I said repentance is costly, but, but at another level you say, really? Is it really costly? I mean, if you were here last week and we went through chapter four in detail, would you rather live in chapter four or would you rather live in chapter seven? Would you rather have 30,000 lost and the ark stolen and everybody for 20 years not serving God? Or would you ever rather have what happens in chapter 7, people connecting with God, people knowing God, God moving powerfully and delivering them? They, they didn't really give up anything that mattered. They received God and his power, serve him only. He teaches the, the people, he calls the people to the first commandment. God says that I have delivered you from Egypt. My grace has made you my people. I've showered love and mercy upon you. So worship me. Have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. He calls them to serve God alone. And they do. So those are the three aspects of their repentance by God's grace. They turn from idols. They direct their heart to the Lord. They serve him only. And we see this serving him only played out in the next six verses or so. Verse 5, to commemorate this, they have a ceremony. Verse 5, Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So Samuel takes a priestly role here. He calls everybody together and he begins to pray for them. Verse 5, I will pray to the Lord for you. So he's interceding for them. Very different. Samuel was around before. Nobody said, Samuel, would you pray for us? They said, get the ark. So he he is praying for them in his priestly role. It says that they pour out water. And we don't know exactly why that is. It doesn't explain. There's a lot of theories. Um, But a common one is that that water represents cleansing frequently in the Old Testament. So probably they are pouring out this water demonstrating the cleansing of the Lord. Or it could be they're pouring out their heart to the Lord and the pouring out of the water represents their pouring out of their heart. They're fasting as well. Why are they fasting at a time like this? Well, it doesn't tell us, but if we read other passages on fasting, it's possible that they're fasting because they're saying, God, you're everything to us. You're you're more valuable than food. We don't even need food. We're coming back to you, and we're trusting in you alone. It's not sinful to eat. Um, It's sinful to rely upon food or, or, or act gluttonously, but it's not sinful to eat. They're just saying, even that, we don't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from your mouth, you are everything to us and so they are fasting they are also confessing their sin it says they say we have sinned against the lord that is so utterly absent in chapter four the guys working down at the church are stealing the offering and sleeping with the women that are working at the church and it's okay And when dad hears about it, he says, hey, boys, why are you doing this? I hear these bad reports. Why are you doing this? And he does nothing about it. There is a passive leadership. There is men that are acting like the Canaanites. And we find out that they actually were acting like the Canaanites. The people of the Lord are not acting like the people of the Lord. They don't stand out. They are exactly like the culture. And so they're now saying, we have sinned against you, O Lord. They're recognizing that. This is a renewed people. This is a revived people. They're they're lamenting. They're humble. They're broken and contrite heart. They're looking to God. They're having Samuel pray for them. They're coming back before him. They're, They're even denying themselves food because God is more than enough. That's what it says. You're more than enough to me. That's what it means, rather. It's beautiful, isn't it, that they they have an appetite for God. 
And that's what renewal and revival is about. Whenever renewal comes to a heart, whenever renewal comes to a small group, a family, a church, a, a city of churches, a nation of churches, whenever renewal comes, you will always find this. People have an appetite for God that wasn't there before. An appetite, a heart. that We know what they've had an appetite for. I read to you. We know what they've had an appetite for before. Now they have a heart for God. They're pursuing holiness. Man, here's another misconception. They love holiness and it's beautiful. Here's, here's the bad rap on holiness, as if that's such a thing, that they'd get a bad rap, but it does. People think holiness means holier than thou, self-righteous. That's not holiness. That's sin. Self-righteousness, I'm better than you, that's detestable. That's not holiness. Holiness is a heart for God and his word and his ways. Holiness says God has loved and rescued me and I want to live my life for him. His grace doesn't cause me to want to pursue sin. His grace causes me to want to be conformed to his holiness. A love of holiness is the most beautiful thing we'll ever see in human experience. Haughtiness is detestable. Holiness is glorious. It's beautiful. It emanates from a heart that laments. It doesn't emanate from someone who has no changed heart and just starts living by an external code without a heart in it. That's legalism, making myself right with God, trying to be accepted by God by just doing what I perceive to be the right religious things to do. That's legalism. Holiness is a heart transformed by the grace and the mercy of God that laments after sin and loves God and responds to him. It's appealing. It's glorious. Holiness is glorious. They are lamenting. They are broken. They are contrite. They are dependent. What's more beautiful than dependence on the Lord? What's more appealing than brokenness, contrite heart before God? Not arrogance. Brokenness. Well, they're called to serve him only, right? Remember, it was turn from idols, it was direct your heart to him, and it's serve him only. Look how they serve him only. Because the Philistines never go away. Your Philistines never go away either, nor do mine. They're always with us, tempting us. Verse 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us. So, uh, I'm sorry, back, back in 7, if you'll recall, the, the Philistines hear... And they go up against Israel. Philistines always know what's going on, and they come up against Israel. Verse 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, they're afraid. Verse 7 says, they were afraid of the Philistines. Verse 8, so when they're afraid, what do they do? Get the ark, run back to a religious practice. Oh, man, what are we going to do now? We better go back to Baal. He'll protect us. No. When they're afraid, with the exact same temptation, verse 8, the people said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Chapter 4, they said, get the ark, quote, that it may save us. Now they're saying, Samuel, would you pray? Would you be an intercessor? Would you intercede for us so that God would deliver us? So they want him to pray. They're crying out. And so he's crying out to God for them. Verse 9, Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Okay, before they go to religion, they go to... um, when they're in trouble, they go to religion, they go to uh, rabbit's foot theology, they go to, you know, just sort of an external response... Here they go to God. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You could be very new to the Bible. You don't have to have a PhD in biblical theology to understand what's being pictured here. Samuel is interceding for the people as a priest. Who's our great high priest in the New Testament? It's, it's Jesus. And you know what the New Testament says? He says he ever lives. He's always making intercession for us. Jesus is interceding for you right now. I mean, is that beautiful? Before you showed up here this morning, Jesus was already interceding before the Father for you. Before we opened the Bible and you heard God's word, as you're thinking about what does this mean to my life? What does this passage teach? What is God saying to me? You're thinking those thoughts, he's interceding for you. And they go to Samuel and say, be a priest to intercede for us. We go to the Lord Jesus, who is our intercession before the Father. And then what does Samuel do? He takes a young lamb 
and he sacrifices it as a burnt offering. They burn it so that the lamb is consumed. Well, what does that represent? That, that points forward and, and speaks of the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the Lord Jesus. That's what John the Baptist called Jesus. Jesus takes our sins and that this burnt offering, it's burned, it's, the animal is consumed. Our sins are placed on Jesus. The judgment of God the Father goes out upon the Son, and our sins are consumed. They are done away with. They are expiated. The, the wrath of God is, the New Testament calls it propitiated. That means the, the, Jesus' death absorbs all of God's judgment against us. So what's happening in this scene? The pressure's coming. The enemy's coming. We're looking to intercession. We're looking to the sacrifice. We're looking outside of ourselves to another. Looking outside of ourselves to another. And look what happens. Chapter 4, what happened? They brought in the ark and everyone shouted. The people of Israel shouted. And what happened? 30,000 died. What happens here? It's very different. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. In this chapter, they're looking to God, and God shouts. His shout's a little better than their shout. His shout is thundering. This may mean it was literally a thunderstorm, we don't know. Uh, It doesn't say exactly, but there's this thundering. Whatever the thundering sound is, it's God. It's God speaking, making clear that he's ruling and he's reigning for his people. Do you see the fruit of repentance here? Do you see what they do? This is renewal. The renewed person is looking outside of himself. She's looking outside of herself to the one who intercedes on our behalf, Jesus. He's looking outside of himself. She's looking outside of herself to the Savior who died and gave his life as a sacrifice. This is renewal. It starts with lamenting, but they don't live at lament. Lament is a means to an end, to encounter God. We lament over our sin. We lament before the Lord, as it says. We lament after the Lord Because God does that, he speaks to our mind and reveals his character. Then he deals with our heart so that we see how offensive our sin is before God. I mean, when I was reading you guys the stuff about the Canaanites, did you not think, man, that's uncomfortable, wasn't it? It's almost so offensive in the name of worship. They're doing that with the prostitute to worship their God. All of our sin is adultery before the Lord. All of our sin is like that. That's the book of Hosea. It's like sexual unfaithfulness is to a marriage, so our sin is against our holy God. So there is a lamenting after sin, but then there is a letting go of the idols that destroy us and a turning to the Lord and an embracing of Jesus, a love for holiness, a love for Christ, an embracing of Jesus, and then watching God work. They start with lament, But they don't stay there. They end with a lamb who is slaughtered. They end all eyes on Jesus. You walk through the lament. You walk through the turning away from idols. And you walk to Jesus. You walk to God who receives us and welcomes us as we come home to him. Very, very different. They do one thing at the end. I'm going to wrap up here. But at the end... Actually, there's two things that happened at the end, but in verses 12 and 13, it's very interesting. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he called its name Ebenezer. Oh, that was the place they were back in chapter 4. Ebenezer means stone of help. He calls it stone of help. It's a memorial. It's a commemoration. It's something to memorialize what God had done. And he says, till now the Lord has helped us. It means stone of help. So we're going to put up this stone monument, and it means... Until now, the old English is hitherto. I like that. We need to reincorporate that word in our language. Hitherto, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. It's glorious. It's glorious. They, they remember. Hitherto, up to this point, you've been with us. What does that mean? Well, geographic, geographically, up to this place where you did this work, you've been with us. And in time, up to this point in time, you've been with us. It's to remember the faithfulness of God. God was faithful to them even in chapter 4. They weren't faithful. 
But where do you think it ever came up with the idea to lament after the Lord? That's, this, that's God working in his people. God gives that desire. Where do you think they decided to turn? God, that's a supernatural repentance. God works in our hearts to turn us. Where do you think they came when they said, we want to direct ourselves to the Lord? We want to say, Samuel, all our trust is in God, so would you pray for him? We don't even know how to do that. Would you cry out for us? Because we know he has the power to save us. Where did that come from? That's God. God has been faithful to his people. God has been faithful, and so they remember. So what does this passage say to us today? Well, there's some in the room that we could be living somewhat in chapter 4. Relating with God means doing some religious activity, especially when we get in trouble. That's what they do. When things get bad, we go religious. That's what happened in chapter 4. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's not we go religious, but when things go bad, I go somewhere else. Like them. I go to sex. uh, I go to uh, alcohol to medicate my pain. I, uh, I go somewhere. You go somewhere. I, I go to, you know, controlling, trying to control everything. I, I go somewhere with my difficulty and pain that's not God. So maybe you do that, but you would say, I, I, I don't lament after the Lord. I don't even know what that means. Then here's the response. If that's us today, here's the response. We need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, help me see you. Because if we see him through the scripture as he is, the lament part comes a lot more naturally. You don't just get in a room and start going, oh, I feel bad. I want to lament. You know, just sort of grit your teeth and start feeling really sad. You can't do that. And it would be wrong. It's if you see the holiness of God and the, not just the holiness, the holiness of God who requires perfection. When we see that, we lament and see our sin. And also when we see the mercy of God, what he's done for us, our heart melts and we, we desire to please him as opposed to Use him, which they did in chapter 4. So maybe that's you. Lament. And if you're not there, say, Lord, help me lament. Help me to see this in a way that would serve you. I know the time, but maybe this illustration will be helpful. I I preached a message on surface uh, repentance last week. My wife was not here. I didn't share this in the first service, but I just saw her and it reminded me. My wife was not here. She was sick. So she wants to talk to me on Monday. She's not heard the message on surface repentance. She heard it later in the week. Uh, so she wants to raise some things with me very graciously, very humbly, that were concerns uh, with me and how I'm caring for her as a husband. And my immediate response, I preached the sermon last week, which, which really means very little. My immediate response was, how can I fix this? Oh, okay, let's get a to-do list. Okay, she says, if I would do this, she would feel cared for. So, okay, let me just, what are they? Let me write them down. Okay, I'll start doing those things. Which wouldn't be a bad idea, ultimately. But if that's as far as it goes, that's just arc-fetching. So I appropriately asked for forgiveness, but then I just spent the week right here, verse 3. This has been my prayer, Lord. Lord, I, I understand intellectually what she's saying, that there's some things I'm doing that aren't caring for her or loving her, or serving her. And I intellectually agree with them. But Lord, I don't think I see them as an offense before you. Yeah, I know the verse, love your wife as Christ loves the church. I got that one. I got that one memorized. But Lord, I don't feel that. I don't see that. I'm not living that this is about me and you in the first place, not about me and her. Or she and I, or I forget the, forget the vocabulary. I don't care. <laughs> the two of us. The vertical dimension must be there. Now, that doesn't mean that I say, okay, I'll get back to you in six months or 20 years, like for them, when I feel that, hang tight. No, you, you make some steps, and here's what happens. Oftentimes, as we make steps by faith, that's when sometimes the awareness of conviction comes as we move forward doing what we know to be true, and that's my experience this week, and I'm not, I'm not at verse 3 yet. But I'm, taking some, I'm sensing God's doing a renewal and a revival. And, and by the way, when I started the Revive series and praying for revival, I, I'm, I'm not thinking about marriage problems. I'm thinking about reaching the nations. But that's not where God's. God's saying, let's start right here, where you live. He's saying that to every one of us. So we want to lament. And if you're not there, then you just say, Lord, I'm not there. Would you help me? I want to do what I know to be right by faith, but change my heart. That's lament. 
Invite prayer. Ask someone else to help you. Number two, what else is God saying to us? Lament. Turn from idols. Turn to the Lord. It's tangible. It can be tangible and it can be costly to put away, but it's glorious to turn to him and receive him. It's a receiving of the grace of God. It's looking to Jesus for our satisfaction. It's saying God is more than enough. It's saying I'm trusting him to fulfill me. I know those can sound kind of like platitudes, but it's just reality. It's just what's happening. They're looking to God alone. More than food. More than let's start fighting. Let's trust. They're they're putting everything on Jesus. They have no plan B or not Jesus, the com- Jesus is coming, but God. They're trusting God alone here. So turn and trust. Maybe ask the Lord to help you. What, is tr- what do I need to turn away from? God will make that clear to you, by the way. If, if you ask, he'll make that clear, I believe. He'll have someone else help you. No, like I described myself, he'll help my situation. He'll help someone else help you, no, because he loves you. Someone else will help you see as well. Ask for help there and turn to him serve him only. What does that mean, serve him only? It means what happens here. When the temptation comes, where do they go? That's what serving the Lord only is. When the temptation comes, where do I go? They go to intercession and to the sacrifice. For us, we trust in Christ. We ask for his help. We ask others to pray for us. They ask them to pray. We ask others to pray for us. And we trust in what he has done for us, that he not only died and rose to forgive our sins, but to give us power to change. The death and resurrection of Jesus wipes away your sins, but it also empowers you to be a different person by the Spirit. So we ask for him to help us. All along the line, we can invite others into that process to help us. But that's what serving him only is. It's what happens here. When the heat comes on, not in church... It wasn't just we're serving him only while we're having this water ceremony. It's we're serving, hey, Samuel, did you see the Philistines are coming up the hill wanting to kill us? That's when they trust the Lord. That's serving him only. And remember, that's the last point. It's helpful to remember. They have a stone. God has been my help. It's helpful to go back and say, Lord, you know, I don't sense a conviction. I don't sense the glory of Christ. I don't, I'm not living there. But Lord, remember, look at all that you've done for me. Even the fact you're hearing this today God is being kind to you to open up this scripture and to call you back to himself. God's being kind. He's with us up until this moment. He's with us today, hitherto. He is right here helping us, telling us these things from his word because he loves us and he hasn't left us, but he's with us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.